One day, a kindergarten teacher was helping one of her students put on some cowboy boots. It was time to go, and he, he needed to put on cowboy boots and, and leave, and he was going to go out in the cold, so he needed to get all bundled up, starting with the cowboy boots. And so he asked for her help, and she could see why. Even with her pulling and him pushing on these boots, the little boots didn't want to go on. So finally, when the second boot was finally on, and she had worked up a good sweat uh, trying to get this kid out the door, she almost cried when the little boy said, Teacher... These boots are on the wrong feet. So she looked down, and sure enough, they were on the wrong feet. So it wasn't any easier pulling the boots off than it was putting them on, but she started on that and managed to keep her cool and be professional as together they worked again to try to get these boots back on, this time on the right feet. And it was only then when she finally got them on there that he announced, These aren't my boots. She bit her tongue, and rather than yell at him, why didn't you say something like she wanted to? She just started again working on the boots. Once again, she helped him pull those boots off his feet. took a while. And no sooner had they got the boots off again than he said, yeah, these are my brother's boots, but my mom made me wear them today. So she wanted to scream, but she didn't. She mustered up the grace and courage, whatever she had left, to to wrestle those boots back on his feet again. And she started to help him with his coat. And then she said, now where are your mittens? To which he said, well, I stuffed them in the toes of these boots this morning. (laughs) Kids. Kids can be frustrating. And it doesn't stop at kindergarten. At least that's what I've discovered. For most of us, a lot of us kids are just people who are younger than we are. They don't have to be uh, elementary school age to be kids. They can just be a generation under us, right? Let me ask you tonight, do you ever get frustrated over the next generation? Is that something that ever keeps you awake at night or makes you concerned or becomes a topic of conversation for you? You know, we were never like them, right? whoever that next generation is. We were never like them. They listen to weird music. Some of them have weird looking hair. Some of the folks running around today have multiple tattoos and piercings. They have gravity problem with their pants. They have strange lingo that's hard to understand. Their heads are stuck in the latest technology. You know, on and on we go. What's, what's the deal with these kids? Doesn't matter if you are a part of the greatest generation. If you are what they call a baby boomer, a millennial, part of the silent generation, part of Generation X, Generation Z, whatever they're calling folks these days, and the the next generation coming. What I want to understand tonight and remind us of is this this is not a new problem, us being frustrated about the next generation. That's not a new problem to uh, our experience. It's always been this way. Uh, you, you know people who've told you that kind of stuff before you came along, and then uh, you've, you've done some of that discussion about the next generation coming. I guess that's natural. I guess it's inevitable. We just, we just, that's what we do. I want you to consider this quote, though, from a thinker. His name was Hesiod. He lived in the 8th century B.C., so quite a long time ago. This is what he had to say. Sounds a lot like some things you hear today. I see no hope for the future of our people. 
if they are dependent on the frivolous youth of today. For certainly all youth are reckless beyond words. When I was a boy, here we go, you know, that's, that's, that's your key right there. We were taught to be discreet and respectful of our elders. But the present youth are exceedingly wise and impatient of restraint. And then we have a, another one here. Plato says that Socrates says this in ancient Greece. The children out there now love luxury. They have bad manners. They have contempt for authority. They show disrespect for elders and love chatter in place of exercise. Children are now tyrants, not the servants of their household. They no longer rise when elders enter the room. They contradict their parents. They chatter before company. They gobble up dainties at the table. They cross their legs and they tyrannize their teachers. Uh, sounds pretty, that sounds like a pretty modern concern, but it was way back there in ancient Greece. I'm not really into musicals, but in 1963, there's a musical called Bye Bye Birdie. I don't know how many of you are familiar with that. Maybe you like that or remember some of the music from that, but there's a song in there called Kids. And it was uh, sung by an adult who was trying to figure out his teenage kids. He says in that song, kids, I don't know what's wrong with these kids today. Kids, who can understand anything they say? Kids, they're disobedient, disrespectful oafs. Noisy, crazy, sloppy, lazy, loafers. And while we're on the subject, kids. You can talk and talk till your face is blue. Kids, but they still do just what they want to do. Why can't they be like we were? Perfect in every way. What's the matter with kids today? Uh, maybe you knew the tune. That was sort of close to the tune, I guess. But anyway, isn't that, isn't that what you hear people say sometimes? Maybe we wouldn't be as bold as saying, hey, we were perfect in every way, but... Why can't they be like we were? What's the matter with these kids? What we often fail to consider about generations after us are some very sobering questions. For instance, in what ways have we contributed to some of the challenges that they're facing? Have we made the road harder and more difficult for them? Secondly, in what ways have we failed to engage them? Uh, we talk about them, we observe them from afar, but how have we engaged them or have we failed to do that? And then third, if we write them off, the generations to come, how could that come back to harm us? I think there's some very uh, specific and, and physical ways that could happen, but uh, we're going to talk about the spiritual a little tonight. I think it's important uh, that we understand some things about generations to come. I want to go to a kind of a strange place to talk about this. Numbers chapter 32. So you're going to have to, you're going to, have to go rifling through the, the Old Testament there. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. And um, chapter 32. You know, uh, from your study and uh, the classes you've been a part of in the past, that the book of Numbers is a lot of the detail of things that are happening to the Israelite people, the Hebrew nation, as they're walking toward their destiny, the promised land, right? And they don't have it yet. In fact, because of rebellion, they've had to kind of walk around the wilderness and just enjoy what the wilderness has to offer for 40 years. But they're coming close to the time when they're going to have to um, see that God makes good on His promises. They're going to have to move forward and be faithful this time. 
And listen to what he has to say. A previous generation has mostly perished in the wilderness. They didn't have enough faith to believe God's promises. And the new one is poised to take the land of promise. That's, that's where we are in Numbers 32. And, and a, a strange thing happens in this chapter. There are two tribes, the tribes of Reuben and Gad. And they come to Moses and, and approach him about opting out of, of further conquest. This is basically the first five verses uh, of chapter 32. They basically say, you know, we've chatted amongst ourselves and we want to forgo the rest of the campaign. We've, we've already, just to the east of the Jordan River, conquered all these kings and, and acquired territory. And so before everybody moves over the Jordan River and takes Jericho and then begins to occupy the land of promise, we think this spot right here is pretty great. We'd like to stay right here. You know, we have cattle. We have a lot of cattle. And this is cattle country. So let us just stay here. You guys go on over there and fight the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and whatever ites you happen to run across, okay? You guys go do that. And we want to stay right here. Well, there are a couple times in, in this wilderness wandering time that Moses loses his cool, right? And this is one of them. I mean, he loses it. He is ticked uh, about this response. Just when things are going well, when we're about to get started again with the campaign, what's the matter with kids, <laughs> right? The new generation here says they don't want to do this. So, beginning in verse 6, Moses says this. I'll read a little bit of this. Beginning in verse 6. Should your fellow Israelites go to war while you sit here? Why do you discourage the Israelites from crossing over into the land the Lord has given them? This is what your fathers did. This is what the previous generation did when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to look out over the land. And after they went up to the valley, they viewed the land and they discouraged the Israelites from entering the land God had already given them. And the Lord's anger was aroused that day and He swore uh, this oath, because they have not followed me wholeheartedly, not one of those who were 20 years old or more, when they came up out of Egypt, will see the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not one except for this Caleb and Joshua, for they followed the Lord wholeheartedly. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel, and He made them wander in the wilderness 40 years until the whole generation of those who had done evil in His sight was gone. And here you are, Moses said, a brood of sinners standing in the place of your fathers and making the Lord even more angry with Israel. If you turn away from following him, he will again leave all these people in the wilderness and you will be the cause of their destruction. Moses is livid, right? Here's in effect what he says. Number one, you're forgetting how you got here. God has led you through and taken care of all your needs and, and brought you to this point. But there was also another generation and what happened to them. And you, are you really expecting everyone else to secure the land without your participation? Are, are you really saying you want to enjoy all the benefits of that 
without coming along in the campaign. And then he says, you know, you're going to be a discouragement. Do you really want to be like the the previous generation that missed out? Do you want to be like those spies that we sent over that came back and said, we can't do this, and then that spread through the camp so much so that everybody wanted to get rid of the leadership and start listening to somebody else and do something different? Are you going to be like them? Are you going to be sinfully rebellious? Are you going to anger the Lord? I mean, isn't this a rejection of God's agenda again, of His promise? He wanted you to take the land. And so to stop short of that, isn't that, isn't that not wise to want to go and do that? Don't anger the Lord. And then you're going to contribute to the destruction of other people, others who are counting on you. And your desire to settle with what you have and quit on the kingdom advance will have very negative consequences. That's what Moses is trying to get across. Right? Moses is upset. Luckily, these folks responded very well. Thankfully. Some of your study Bibles are going to say something like that, that maybe Moses overreacted here. Maybe he's going a little too far. Um. But all the things he says in his speech are true. They're right. And the others are expecting them to join the campaign. But they respond well. They say, in effect, the next several verses, we want the land over here, but we will go and fight with you while our women and children and livestock remain here. We're going we're to go ahead of the others and not return until their inheritance is secured. In fact, all of the inheritance is secured. In essence, what they're saying is, we're going to fight for this generation and for the next generation. We're going to fight for people who do not yet have what we have. We're willing to sacrifice and to put ourselves at risk for them so they can receive what God has promised. And then Moses pronounced a blessing if they kept their promise, but warned if they did not do it, you will be sinning against the Lord and you may be sure that your sin will find you out. This is a pretty serious deal going on here, right? Moses says, I'm going to hold you to your word. But be sure if you don't follow through, that sin is going to find you out. Luckily, the tribes were found to be true to their word. They fought for the future of Israel. You read that in the book of Joshua. And near the end of the book of Joshua, chapter 22 when all the inheritance had been secured for for all the tribes, these Reubenites and Gadites and some a half tribe of the uh, tribe of Manasseh settled on the western side of the Jordan River, and they set up an altar that at first was misunderstood and almost caused a big problem. But they set up an altar that said, "We want to make sure that our children." The next generation knows that we are connected to the folks over on the east side of the Jordan River. That we are part of this kingdom advance. That might be a strange place for us to start tonight, but I think it's very instructive. Uh, I've been invited here to talk about vital information. What every Christian needs to know. And one of the things that you and I need to understand and know tonight is that the church 
is losing ground with younger generations. Um, it's not my job tonight to make us feel bad. That's not my job tonight. But the truth is, we are losing ground in a lot of places with younger generations. The studies out there are alarming to many of us, and there's probably lots of factors at play, including what's going on in the home, right? Um, but certainly, churches have a responsibility. Churches are closing their doors in places as older folks are dying off and the younger people are leaving them. And perhaps in pockets like here in Tennessee, God's country, right? The land of promise, uh, we feel like. We may not have experienced that as much as some other places. And I know there's a lot of good things going on here. But folks, we're losing ground with younger generations. And we're seeing it in study after study, especially between 18 to 35-year-old kids. There's a desperate need out there for developing leaders who are going to carry us into the, the future. Kids who are going to devote themselves to ministry, to planting churches, to becoming missionaries. And if you call our Christian universities, they'll tell you the challenges, some of the challenges we're facing. While they have increased enrollment in some places, they also have less and less folks who are interested in uh, full or even part-time ministry. And that affects all of us eventually. Our temptation is to say about things like that and, and looking at the next generation you know, these kids are just uninterested, they're unspiritual, they're ungodly. Uh, they're certainly not like we were growing up. The temptation is for us to do that, to say, what's, what's the matter with kids these days? But could it be that those of us who are older have forgotten to fight for the next generation? Don't we have a responsibility to do what we can for them? I know we feel that responsibility when it comes to our own kids and our own grandkids. We feel that very acutely. Uh, but don't we also have a responsibility in our churches to be involved in encouraging the next generation? You know, it's so easy to discourage folks that we look at and wonder about, and, and it's easy to dismiss them, but when are we going to fight for them? You know, there, there are a lot of kids out there who are desperate for a church family to come alongside them and lovingly fight for them. I'll tell you from, from personal experience, I've witnessed both sides of this in, in 20 plus years of ministry, okay? Um, both sides of this in, in youth ministry and, and uh, working with, with preaching more these days. I've seen the members who've come alongside the next generation, whether older couples with younger couples or uh, members with our young people. And I've seen them support them and challenge our young people and, and bring them along. Many of them have become deacons in the church and have become uh, leaders and teachers. Some have become missionaries and preachers like that little fellow you got preaching for you here. I've also seen where members have discouraged and judged and maligned and stood as roadblocks and chased away some of these very kids we're talking about who need folks who are willing to fight for them. 
And if we don't fight for them, I'm convinced that we're going to reap what we've sown there and our sin will find us out. I'm convinced that that's true. And it may boomerang uh, back on us in ways that we don't expect, but, but uh, certainly if we don't fight for the next generations, uh, that will hurt us in the end. So I, I, that sounds very sobering. I know that there are wonderful things going on at this church. I know what you're doing to encourage young people and young couples and bringing them along, the next generation of folks. I know what you're doing to mentor kids. I know what you're doing to, uh, to present opportunities for them. So I want to talk tonight, maybe individually. Think about what you can do, you yourself, uh, to fight for the next generation. I want you to consider, first of all, praying for them. Sometimes this is something that we just say that we're going to do, Right? When, when folks come up sick, when we have a challenge that we're trying to meet and we need support for a ministry in the church, let me, let me encourage you to add this to your prayer list. Whether it's a child that you see great potential in or one who is really struggling, a young couple who's uh, having difficulty and needs someone to come alongside them, I'm convinced that James 5.16 is true. James, the brother of Jesus, says, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Do you believe that? Now, he talks in that context about, about leaders of the church coming alongside those who are sick and, and uh, that, that God can do great things there, but I think there's more that he goes on to talk about there as well. Prayer gets things done. It's, it's a strength. It's an untapped resource, it's, it's potency waiting to be released in the church when we pray. This word effective is a word from which we get the word energy. It's, it's not about how beautiful those prayers are or how wordy they are. It's about the one we're talking to, right? The one we address. Prayer is powerful because God is powerful. And I'm convinced that God's still active in our world in response to prayer. Through through prayer and uh, coming alongside God's agenda, you and I have seen lost people saved. People whose hearts were hard to the Lord. We've seen prodigals return. We've seen sick people who've been restored to health. If that was God's will for that to happen, right? Right? We've seen fractured relationships brought back together. We've seen resources being collected beyond what we would have imagined. When, when we work, we work. And when we pray, God works. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21 is one of my personal favorites. Paul says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask, or imagine, according to His power that is at work within us. To Him be glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Paul says, you know, there's a whole lot more that God is doing, working in us and through us, 
And, and so to tap into that power, to pray that God will move and work and do what only God can do is something that you and I have been called to do and to be faithful about. If you can do nothing else tonight, as you think about a young person that needs encouragement or a young couple that needs you to come along beside them, you can pray. You can call on God who does more than you and I could ask or imagine to do what He does best. And I believe that God stands ready to bless sincere requests that are made for future generations. I don't think you and I have a problem with that idea. I think we pray for our kids and our grandkids. We want what's best for them, and so we come before God and we ask for help. And we need to be doing that for others in our church family as well. We need to pray for them. But then some of us are going to take another step. We're going, to, we're going to begin to value them. We're going to love them. Love is a word that we throw around so much. I went with value them. We're going to consider to them to be of worth so that we can invest time and energy into them. Paul says in Romans 12, 10, be devoted to one another in love and honor one another above yourselves. I think you and I need to show genuine care and concern for the next generation. We need to deem them worthy of our time. We need to choose to overlook some things and accentuate the positive things that God is doing in their lives. We need to help them see those things as well. First Peter chapter 4, verse 8, Peter says, above all, love each other Deeply. Why? Because love covers over a multitude of sins. That's true in any relationship. But I want you to think about and apply that to what we're talking about here. So instead of criticizing and maligning and not saying a whole lot in these kids, let's obey Scripture. Let's find ways to love each other deeply. And as we do that, love is going to cover over a lot of those things that are negative that we see in them, at least the way we see them, right? Now, we can work with them and we can show them Scripture and what God wants, but they have to believe that we care and that we're not just teaching them, but that we value them as well. We need to love them as God has loved you. That's an encouragement of Scripture as well, right? Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 3.12, May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else. So maybe that's a prayer request that you need to make about somebody that you've been looking at from, from afar that God would increase your capacity of love for that person, and, and so much that it overflows so that you're willing to put yourself out there for them. Someone, uh, an author, Earl Palmer, said, I know of no fellowship of God's people that was ever harmed by saying thank you too much or by showing affection toward each other. But I'm aware of many churches and many families that dry up 
because of a lack of wholesome affection among its members. Now, I understand that some generations weren't as freewheeling with the uh, emotional uh, expressions of love. Maybe you were part of a family that didn't even do that much hugging or touching. But that's something that we've got to get good at in the church. Showing our love for one another. Showing our affection. and The things that we do and say. Which leads to number three. You and I need to be encouragers. We need to encourage these, these kids. We need to inspire them to do great things and be very intentional about that. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. It's one of my favorite things that Paul says. It's also one of the most difficult things to do. Paul says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. That's a difficult one, isn't it? Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs so that it may benefit those who listen. In fact, if you read the words of Paul in his letters, the Lord has basically given us communication for two reasons. Number one, to praise the Lord. And two, for building others up according to their needs. That's why you and I have been given the gift of communication. Christians are to be communication majors. Speech is a gift, and it's, and it's only supposed to be used to praise and to edify. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. You and I know that words can lift the heart or devastate the soul. There's somebody sitting here in this room, more than likely, who has never fully recovered from damaging, harmful speech. And you know that a well-timed word from someone you know cares can urge you on. It can rekindle hope in your life. It can spark warmth when there was a cold, coldness to the heart. It can trigger healthy change. So you and I need to see potential in these kids. We need to point out their God-given talents. But building them up is hard work. You know, tearing down is a lot more fun. It's a lot easier to do. Uh, when all the Katrina stuff was going on down there on the coast of Mississippi and, uh, and Louisiana especially, a lot of groups were going down there, and, and we, we went down there as well. And there were groups who were trying to do some rebuilding, and there were other groups who were just involved in tearing things down so that they could be rebuilt. Which job do you think is, is easier? It's easier to go in those houses and, and throw everything out. It's easier to knock down those walls so that someone else can come along and, and rebuild. It's a lot harder. It takes a lot more investment of resource and time to build that thing back up. Well, I want you to consider somebody who needs encouragement. You need to speak to them. You need to write to them. You need to text them, post something about uh, to them, tweet, tweet to them. You know, there's all kinds of ways you and I can do this today that, uh, that will affirm them and bring healing in their lives. This is easier to do than ever. So you and I just need to, to do it. 
Whatever we think that is positive needs to be given life. And you and I have a, have a way of underestimating the things that we could say to somebody to lift them up. Romans 14, 19, Paul says, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which we may edify another, build another up. Let's pursue those things. Let's be intentional about it. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, encourage one another, build one another up just as you are doing. Paul says, you're doing, you're doing that and it's wonderful. Never stop doing it because there's somebody else that needs that encouragement. Then you know Hebrews 10. There's something there about meeting together in Hebrews 10, 25, but there's also in verse 24, this encouragement, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. We're going we're gonna to encourage one another, which brings us to the next point. Some of you are going to take seriously this idea and, and start to mentor some of these kids to come alongside them, to demonstrate, not simply lecture or teach, but demonstrate what this really looks like so they can navigate some challenges that they're facing. I love the fact that Paul is a great example of this in Scripture. Acts chapter 9 where we see Paul who has had this conversion experience. He'd been going one direction. The Lord turns him completely the opposite direction And uh, he had been persecuting the church, so he's having a hard time in the beginning getting a hearing from folks who follow Jesus because he was after the folks who follow Jesus. In fact, they they were saying things like, isn't this the guy who was going after people? A little concerned about him. Until a man named Barnabas came along and spent time with Paul and then began to tell others, you know what, I believe in this Paul. I think he can be trusted. I've heard his story. I know that, that he has met the Lord and, and he's going to do great things in the kingdom. And then when the, the gospel began to be open to the Gentiles, it was Barnabas who came and took this Saul of Tarsus, Paul, from the area around Jerusalem and took him with him to Antioch and the believers were first called Christians there in in Antioch. The rest is history. Paul went all over the known world at that time teaching people about Jesus. And along the way, he, he started mentoring others himself. Timothy and Titus. And in Titus chapter 2, he, he shows us what it looks like for older believers to model behavior for younger believers. Older women, younger women, older men, younger men, right? Isn't that great? That's exactly what needs to take place in our churches. Um, Our youth minister there at Red Bank has just started a program in the last couple of years called the SOWER program, and it's it's a mentoring program. We've paired up uh, children, some of which are our, our members, kids and others that are, are coming to us from the community around our building. And we're partnering those uh, kids up with one of our members, an older member, who will go through life with them, who will spend time with them, 
Encourage. Write those notes. Send those texts. Go see their ball game. Spend time with them. Uh, and we're seeing some fantastic results from that. It's a model that truly works. Um, we see some of that in our inner city in Chattanooga as well. It's, it's, that's a wonderful model. Our kids and our younger couples need folks who will come alongside them and not just tell them what they need to do, but will spend time with them, share their hearts, and, and mentor them along the way. And then maybe this is the most difficult one for some of us, and that is to serve them. Make those investments of time and resources. Let me challenge you with this. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, Paul says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Now that's difficult enough right there, okay? Do nothing out of those two things. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. We just talked about that. Not looking to your own interests only, but also each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Man. See, Jesus came along and taught us how to translate our selfish desires in a decision to serve. He said it, didn't he? In his ministry. I've not come to be served. I've come to serve. I've also come to give my life as a ransom for many. A life focused on yourself and getting your needs met only will never be a great life because it gets no larger than you. So Paul says in Galatians 5.13, serve one another humbly in love. So I just want to encourage you tonight. Think about how you can fight for the next generation. Whatever that means to you. Maybe it's Simply the generation below yours. Maybe it's the kids that are running around this building. Find out the ways in which you can resolve to do all you can to be more concerned in a hands-on way with the future and the present of the church. You know, someone probably who was older lovingly paved the way for you. It's usually how this thing works. And if they did... I just want you to consider how you can pay that forward because we desperately need you. As wonderful as things are going here, the leadership of this church needs your participation and your loving investment in the next generation.